Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the final podcast of the year. To round off 2020, I wanted to bring you something specifically from me. Last month, I was very lucky to have a chapter printed in an edited collection by Hellion entitled Life in the Red Coat, looking at morale in the British Army. It was based off a couple of conference papers that I'd done, the first being way back in 2017 in Cambridge, I'm not going to give you the full 10,000 word chapter here today. If you're keen to know more, I'd urge you to buy the book from Hellion, which has some great researchers in there, including Rob Griffith and Carol Deval. So this is an extended snippet of a much bigger piece. The concept behind it was to look at what motivated British soldiers on campaign and chart their emotional and cognitive journeys as the fortunes of the British army ebbed and flowed over the early years of the Peninsular War. So here it is. Tarnished valour, triumph and tragedy. Waxing and waning confidence in Wellington's Peninsular Army, 1808 to 1812. In March 1816, British private William Wheeler, whilst writing to his family, penned perhaps the most famous tribute to the qualities of the Duke of Wellington as a commander. If England should require the service of her army again, and I should be with it, let me have Old Nosy to command. Our interests would be sure to be looked into. We should never have occasion to fear an enemy. What can a soldier desire more? That quote might seem to imply that a study of morale in the British Army is a waste of time. In reality, though, taking Willer's comment at face value is fraught with problems. Written after the final defeat of Napoleon, this remark has all of the rose-tinted perspective of hindsight. Yet this attitude of British soldiers deferentially following Wellington into battle, rightly confident of victory, has been implicitly accepted in some of the historiography of the motivations of British troops during the Napoleonic era. 
As Charles Esdale commented during the Fifth Wellington Congress in 2013, it is too easy to see the Peninsula War as a constant march to victory. There were many occasions when the British Army's presence in the Iberian Peninsula was, at best, precarious. Now, not everyone listening to this will be familiar with the context of the Peninsula War, so for those who are, just indulge me a moment whilst I lay things out for those who aren't up to speed with it. British troops landed in Portugal in August 1808, and within a month had defeated the French at Relitha and Vermeiro. The Convention of Sintra, the ceasefire that was subsequently negotiated, liberated Portugal, but was widely condemned back home, much to the consternation of the troops. The British advanced into Spain, but, heavily outnumbered, were forced to evacuate the region. Although some glory was obtained by defeating the French at the Battle of Corunia, this only served to buy the British time to embark on their evacuation fleet. Fresh troops were sent back to Portugal in 1809, under Wellington, and within four weeks had defeated the French at the Battle of Oporto in May, and re-liberated Portugal in the process. French further victory was obtained at the Battle of Talavera, but strategic concerns, notably issues of supply, forced a withdrawal back to Portugal. The French reinvaded Portugal in 1810, and although defeated at the Battle of Bissaco, pushed the British back to a pre-prepared network of defences north of Lisbon called the Lines of Torres Vedras. Unable to breach these defences, the French duly retreated, leaving Portugal for what turned out to be the last time. Over the course of 1811, the British, with their Portuguese allies, failed to capture the crucial border fortresses of Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz, despite defeating the French in open battle at Fuente John Euro and, just about, at Albuera. 1811 seemed to herald the breaking of this deadlock. Theodore Rodrigo fell in January. Badajoz followed suit in April, and at the Battle of Salamanca in July, the French were comprehensively defeated. Madrid was subsequently liberated, but other French forces in Spain combined to push the British into abandoning their siege of Burgos and forcing them back to the Portuguese border by sheer weight of numbers. Clearly, then, the British army's fortunes ebbed and flowed over the course of the war, and it is impossible to envisage that this did not have a profound effect on the confidence of the troops. It is important at this point to outline precisely what I mean by the term confidence. I'm referring here to a deep-seated contentedness that the troops often experienced, which derived from both a belief in their own ability and their belief that the war which they were fighting could be brought to a successful conclusion, thereby making their efforts in the struggle worthwhile. This is not to be confused with the notion of motivation per se, although the means of measuring both of these concepts tends to overlap. In All for the King's Shilling, Ed Cost suggests that the British Army's success during the Peninsula War can be attributed to the camaraderie that existed at platoon level. In Cost's view, a social group existed which placed value on actions that aided the survival of the group, such as sharing rations and plunder, or holding one's place in the line during battle, whilst condemning behaviour such as fleeing. By contrast, Andrew Bamford's Sickness, Suffering and the Sword demonstrates the importance of the regimental system on the combat effectiveness of the British Army, highlighting the importance of the officer-ranker relationship in maintaining discipline. Their comments form part of a wider discussion of what motivated soldiers, both in this period and actually throughout history, drawing on a model advanced by Stephen Westbrook and Morris Janowitz before him, 
looking at a three-legged stool of motivation through normative, remunerative and coercive rewards, a topic which I will likely pick up in a future podcast. For more on this though, at least in the meantime, I'd thoroughly recommend not only Ed's and Andrew's books, but also Michael Hughes's Forging the Napoleon's Grand Armée and Ilya Berkovich's Motivation in War. That said, it remains difficult to fully reconcile the instances of widespread collapses of discipline and morale, such as those displayed during the retreats to Coruña and Theodore Rodrigo, with these otherwise compelling arguments. Something went catastrophically wrong there, and that merits further investigation. Equally, periods of widespread contentedness within the British army cannot solely be attributed to esprit de corps. Such events are suggestive of something far more widespread, which affected all men simultaneously and caused the majority to act in the manner in which they did. I would suggest that that element is confidence. Confidence is a multifaceted entity, which was derived from a number of different sources. Bamford suggests that the regiment's uh, kind of bottom-up sense of self-identity prevented any form of top-down identification with the army or the nation. I generally agree with that. There is very little that I've seen to suggest enduring loyalty to king and country as an overwhelming motivator in the rank and file. It certainly never appeared in any of the memoirs, letters or diaries that I consulted in my research. Men were not talking about fighting for their king, they were talking about fighting for other reasons. Nonetheless, when examining the nature of the British soldier's self-confidence, it is striking how often it was expressed in nationalistic terms. Charles Esdale has shown that from the outset of the conflict, there was a widespread assumption amongst the British troops that Napoleon's men would simply flee at the first sight of a British soldier. This sense of superiority has noticeable parallels with the public attitude, visible in some caricatures produced at the time. A prime example of this is Spanish patriots attacking the French banditti, loyal Britons lending a lift, from August 1808. You can Google it and find it very easily. The depiction of the British grenadier in the foreground of that print is particularly noteworthy. There are clear undertones of national pride in the way that he steps over a decapitated French soldier, tramples on French banners labelled invincible legions, while simultaneously killing not one but two French soldiers with a single thrust of his bayonet. That a caricature would suggest that one British infantryman equates to two elite French soldiers is frankly unsurprising. Linda Coley has argued that by this point in the Napoleonic Wars, demonstrating a basic patriotism actually made good business sense, and the notion of what it meant to be British was deeply entwined with the tradition of fighting and defeating the old enemy of France. She goes so far as to suggest that being British, in inverted commas, was often redacted to something as simple as just being not French. Nonetheless, the similarities between the caricatures and the attitudes of the British soldier are striking. The sense of national superiority could also be expressed negatively, particularly when it came to the British soldiers' disillusionment with their Spanish and Portuguese allies. Letters and diaries from the period are full of unfavourable comments exemplifying this. One officer, Porter, expressed his disgust for the Portuguese, for their lack of hygiene and poor sanitation, and subsequently for the Spanish, for their idleness and apparent lack of zeal. Part of the issue often lay in the negative reaction that troops had to Lisbon upon their arrival in the peninsula, at least for much of the war. As Private Wheeler put it, without seeing them, the Portuguese, it is impossible to conceive there exists a people in Europe so debased. 
Equally, a number remained unconvinced about the qualities of the Portuguese as soldiers. A lot actually depended on what they had personally witnessed. Whilst rifle officer George Simmons acknowledged that they could, quote, fight like tigers, artillery officer Thomas Dinley decried them as cowardly scoundrels, in part because he was captured as a result of some Portuguese cavalry running away, whilst rifleman Ed Costello considered them to be, quote, the dirtiest and noisiest brutes who have never been known to perform a gallant act. There is clear disillusionment here, partly due to the failure of reality to match up with the portrayal of the war back in Britain. Equally, the Spanish were usually scapegoats whenever the British experienced privations or setbacks. Porter lamented the lack of Spanish zeal prior to the retreat to Coruña in 1808, remarking, quote, Where are the promised patriots in arms? All we expected to have met with have made themselves heir. The voice that summoned us is silent. The country is filled with a conquering foe. The Spanish armies are dispersed, and we find ourselves in a snare. The failures of the Talavera campaign in 1809 were largely blamed on the Spanish, an accusation that had just enough truth behind it to make it stick, although the Spanish were by no means solely to blame. And during the deadlock in 1811, the following comment from Coldstream Guards officer John Mills was symptomatic of the frustration that many felt at the apathy of their allies. I think Spain is already conquered, and that the next campaign will show it us. They look upon us with a jealous eye, and would rather submit to a French king than be incorporated with England, as Portugal is. These strands of nationalistic sentiment were partly a survival tactic. Believing that they were better than their, their opponents was clearly vital to British morale, whilst blaming their allies for any failings made it easier to come to terms with setbacks whilst keeping self-confidence high. It was a simple and logical measure. If they were confident in their own ability, as British troops, of a superior quality to their French enemy, which had produced one of the greatest fighting machines since the Roman Empire, then any setback had to be down to someone else. However, belief in their own superiority was not an answer enough by itself. The fact that the British soldier believed in themselves may help to explain how they came to terms with setbacks, but it does not explain collapses in discipline. Confidence, like any emotion, is difficult to track, as it is hard to determine how representative a view from any one journal might be. Desertion statistics are therefore worth exploring. Now, desertion was not automatically caused by low confidence and can be attributed to a number of factors, not least opportunity. Nonetheless, it was the ultimate display of indifference towards one, one's colleagues, and therefore required significant motivation to both break the ties of friendship and run the risk of punishment. It's worth bearing in mind that desertion was the army's most prosecuted crime, and offenders could be shot. General court-martial data for 1808-1812 indicates that 133 deserters were tried among those regiments serving in the Iberian Peninsula with punishments ranging from 800 lashes to execution. Only nine were found not guilty or guilty of just being absent without leave, which carried a lower punishment as a lesser offence. The risks were therefore high, and when peaks in desertion rates can be identified, this can be indicative of something affecting the mindset of the troops on a wider scale. When these periods are then compared with the context of the war, and the comments from journals from those same periods, we find that confidence emerges as a recurring theme, which was affecting the troops' mindset. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's immediately apparent with the desertion stats that they are skewed by foreign units. When conducting this research, I made a distinction between regular British Army regiments raised and predominantly recruited inside the British Isles, therefore excluding the Spanish Portuguese regiments and the King's German Legion and Chasseurs Britannique. What was noticeable is that if you kept the Spanish and Portuguese out of the equation, in part because I haven't been able to find desertion data for those, but then compare the differences when you include or exclude units from the King's German Legion and Chasseurs Britannique, the difference is marked. Proportionately, desertion was much lower amongst British units. They made up a larger part of the army numerically, yet experienced fewer desertions numerically than the smaller foreign contingent. For more on this, particularly with reference to the Chasseurs Britannique, it's well worth having a look at the work of Alistair Nichols. The other striking factor about desertions is that they are very small in number. If you examine monthly desertions from British-only units between 1808 and 1812, calculated as a percentage of total troops in the Iberian Peninsula, at their worst, desertions in November 1812 amounted to just 0.0032% of troops in the army. At its best, in September 1811, it was a mere 0.0002%, or just 10 men out of 49,100. Clearly then, to say that the British Army was not suffering from an endemic desertion problem is something of an understatement. In fact, desertion was at its worst after the war was over. Desertion rates, in comparative terms, soared to around 1% in May and June 1814, as the army redeployed to other theatres. There were a couple of reasons for this. One was that the army refused to transport what might be termed unofficial spouses, in other words, wives whose soldiers had married without the consent of their commanding officer because there wasn't a vacancy on the official establishment of battalion wives. Rather than abandon their spouses, they abandoned the army. Another factor was opportunity, with the army redeploying to other countries. The prospect of ever being caught and punished by an army that was no longer around was obviously much more remote. Quite simply, there was a rare opportunity to get away with the desertion which normally didn't present itself. Nonetheless, when plotted as a graph of desertions by month over time, the data draws our attention to periods where the situation was worse, a number of which can be easily explained. The retreat to Corinna, the withdrawal to Portugal marking the failure of the Talavera campaign, and the withdrawal from Burgos highlighting the failures of the autumn of 1812. Each of these were occasions 
when the troops believed that the war could be won. In other words, their confidence was at a low ebb. And this is shown in the desertion data, which spikes accordingly. Other peaks are more intriguing and revealing in terms of understanding the role of confidence in troop motivation, though. November 1808 saw the second worst desertion rates for the period 1808 to 12, something quite remarkable considering how generally consistently low these rates were, and which can be matched with this despondent extract from the usually optimistic Porter. Although Sir John Moore will exert his talents and military powers to the utmost, 30,000 men cannot, for any length of time, perhaps not in the contest of one battle, oppose without instant annihilation the accumulating hosts of France. This increase in desertions was not the result of the retreat to Corunia, which only began in the last week of 1808. The most logical explanation is that there was an increase in the belief that the Peninsula War was a doomed enterprise, which may partly have been due to the British disappointment with the Spaniards. The reality failed to live up to the inflated reports which had been so prevalent in Britain, and the confidence of the British army was therefore severely shaken. Equally, the mood of the British public and the ridicule that the Convention of Sintra had received may have had an impact. Gilray's caricature, Whitlock II or another tarnish for British valour, is representative of the distaste with which the Convention was viewed back home. You can see it on the British Museum Archive website, though I can't produce it myself for copyright reasons. Equally, if you Google it, you can find a copy in the Bodleian that's freely available online. The point is that it shows the three British commanders, Wellesley, Dalrymple and Cotton, grovelling to Juno, who deigns to consider the truce proposed by the three uh, senior commanders in the convention. William War remarked that the perception that Sintra had caused the army to lose the British public's gratitude for their efforts at Vermeero had created a feeling of widespread despondency, a sentiment which was echoed by Porter. Whilst this is by no means conclusive, it is indicative of an interplay where the attitudes of the public could affect the mood of the army. This was not an isolated incident, as a number of letters and diaries indicate that what the public thought mattered deeply to many in the army. Army surgeon Charles Boutflower serves as a typical example from 1811 by remarking with genuine pleasure that the, quote, English papers inform us that the good people are highly delighted with the Battle of Albuera. This sentiment was particularly prominent in 1812, both in victory and in retreat. Whilst the army's confidence could not be destabilised by an unfavourable reaction from the British public, it could unsettle the troops, particularly the officers, it would seem, which in turn impacted upon their outlook. And of course the rank and file were not immune from the same sentiments or ignorant, ignorant of what their officers were feeling. Naturally, the commander of the army played a crucial role in the troops' belief that the war could be won. It would be erroneous of us to assume that confidence in the commander was unshakable. Both Moore and Wellington were generally regarded favourably. However, the phenomenon of croaking, that is, complaining about the conduct of an officer, which was particularly prominent in 1809-10, showed that support for the commander was not to be taken for granted. So frustrated was Wellington by the issue that on the 10th of August 1810, in a general order, he issued this rather eloquent request, but his critics keep their mouths shut. The commander of the forces only requests that the officers will, for the sake of their own reputations, 
avoid giving opinions upon which they cannot have a knowledge to enable them to form any. Nonetheless, an unbroken record of victories ensured that, by 1811, Wellington was well trusted by his men. The costly Allied victory at the Battle of Albuera that year, where the troops were commanded by Marshal Beresford rather than Wellington, seemed to play a crucial role in the realisation that Wellington was one of the best commanders available. One famous anecdote relates to how one fusilier turned to his companion in the midst of battle and said, Where's our Arthur? It was actually said, I believe, by a chap from Newcastle, but you'll really be relieved to hear that I won't be attempting that accent. When his comrade said that he didn't know, he remarked, I wish he was here. When Wellington visited the wounded a few days later, he remarked to soldiers of the 29th that he was sorry to see so many of them in hospital. One soldier replied, My lord, if you had been with us, there would not have been so many of us here. Kincaid, perhaps, phrased the new consensus in the army best. We would rather see his long nose in a fight than a reinforcement of 10,000 men any day. Equally, it is striking that NCOs and officers alike wrote with sympathy for the strategic difficulties that Moore faced in 1808, although, admittedly, there was a desire to eulogise Moore following his death at Corunya. What is most revealing when exploring attitudes towards commanders is that whilst their abilities were recognised, they were criticised for their reluctance to commit to battle. Both Moore and Wellington were the focus of frustrated comments whenever a prudent withdrawal was ordered. It was at these points that the differing layers of confidence intertwined yet also conflicted, as the supremely self-confident British remained adamant that they could defeat the French and resented the perceived lack of trust that their commander had in them. Self-confidence seemingly trumped everything, including reason, creating an atmosphere of almost suicidal bravery where they would rather face battle, whatever the odds. There were repeated instances throughout the war when discipline significantly improved at the prospect of fighting a battle. At such moments, the troops' irritation with their commander evaporated and, surprisingly, struggling units reformed. Both Porter and Hamilton observed a spike in morale following orders in the last days of 1808 to prepare for an assault on French troops in Old Castile. This positivity may be attributable to a basic British confidence in their combat ability, a notion which is further supported, actually, by the Corinna retreat. Contrary to popular belief, discipline did not collapse due to the appalling weather on the long retreat, as Moore complained about his soldiers' widespread misconduct from the first days of the withdrawal, when conditions were far less severe. As Porter observed, every countenance was changed. The proud glow on their cheeks was lost in a fearful painfulness. A few murmurs were heard, and the army of England was no more. Its spirit was fled. In my life I have never witnessed such an instantaneously withering effect upon any body of living creatures. A sudden and catastrophic change of mood overcame much of the army, which both Porter and Hamilton suggest was due to the psychology of retreating without having been defeated. After days of straggling and plunder, however, the troops returned to their units and inflicted a telling defeat on the French at the Battle of Corunna. Admittedly, though, the improvement of morale must have also been affected by the availability of supplies from the evacuation fleet moored in Corunna Harbour. In light of this, there is a clear validity in Roy Muir's remark that there was an element of the fair-weather sailor in the British soldier, an assessment which is further supported by the similar circumstances of the retreat from Burgos 
in late 1812. The retreat from Burgos demonstrates the significance of the multiple strands of confidence. Wellington's mistakes in late 1812 were far from disastrous, and he displayed considerable skill in extracting his army during a difficult retreat. Nonetheless, by this point Wellington's presence was considered a guarantor for success. One war-weary officer remarked that he could not imagine Wellington being outdone at Burgos. That Wellington had seemingly lost, lost his touch disconcerted his men. Equally, the troops' high hopes of pushing the French beyond the river Ebro were dashed by the order to withdraw. However, it was a lack of provisions that turned these unfavourable circumstances into a collapse of discipline. It was the combination of all of these factors that had such a profound effect on the troops' morale. Insufficient rations were simply the straw that broke the camel's back, and the shaking of confidence in both Wellington's ability and in the potential to win the war were the primary issues. Furthermore, the perceived shame of failing to meet the public's expectations resurfaced during the retreat. Captain Bragg summarised the sentiment, I regret excessively having been obliged to have to recourse to this measure which has disappointed the expectations of England. Boutflower considered the prospect of retreat as mortifying in the extreme for similar reasons. The confidence of British troops serving in the peninsula was, therefore, a multifaceted entity, centering on three principal areas. The first was an underlying self-confidence that they would defeat the French whenever they fought them. This was something which commentators referred to repeatedly, and, if anything, was more evident during retreats. The other levels of confidence were more fluid. Confidence in the commander of the British forces was generally high, whether that commander was Moore or Wellington. Nonetheless, in times of retreat, this confidence dwindled significantly. At these points, troops drew more on their self-confidence, with resulting increases in exasperation at their commander's unwillingness to commit to battle. Finally, the belief that the war could be won fluctuated according to the prevailing strategic situation, although from 1811 this form of confidence grew significantly. All of those levels were intrinsically linked though. There was, therefore, an important and complex factor in the British Army's success during the Peninsular War which has generally been overlooked. Wellington later claimed that he could have gone anywhere and done anything with his Peninsular Army. It was the confidence which British troops had, both in themselves and in their commander, which made this possible. So that gives you a quick run-through of the main ideas that were picked up in the chapter, although I go into much more depth, obviously, in the actual piece. As I say, you can get the book that it appears in from Hellion. It's called Life in the Red Coat, and I believe there is still a recent publication discount to be enjoyed, at least at the time of recording. So if you are interested, be sure to snap that up. That's it this year on The Napoleonicist. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has made this happen. In nine months, The Napoleonicist has gone from just another wacky idea to a podcast that has followed in 32 countries and has racked up over 24,000 listens, with 30 hours of content across 70 episodes. It's a success that far eclipses anything I could have envisaged. When I first started, I figured that if 100 people listened into an episode, it would be worth doing. It now averages about quadruple that. To all of my guests who pour their hearts and souls into their research and prepare meticulously for our recordings, 
thank you for sharing your fascinating work with the Napoleonicist community. To everyone who likes the social media posts, who shares or retweets, who recommends it to friends, who comment and keep the conversation going, who post reviews, thank you all. Please do keep posting, keep reviewing and spreading the word. It all helps in that aim that I mentioned way back at the start of this, in March, of reaching across the divide between academic research and popular history, which the Napoleonicist strives to achieve. Remember that the conversation is always open at the napoleonicwars.net forward slash forum, and you can contact me at any time on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. I especially want to take a moment to thank a select group of exceptionally generous people who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. I didn't like setting up the Patreon page, but it's one of those situations of needs must, and the generosity of some listeners is helping me to meet the overheads associated with production and explore new exciting avenues of development, which will ultimately result in more content for you to enjoy and a higher quality from the podcast. If you are interested in learning more about how you can become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash the Napoleonicist. There's a link in the description. Tiers start from £1 a month, and there are some neat little perks in each tier, like having your name appear in the credits and the chance to influence future content. The Napoleon Assist will remain free to access, though, and I've adopted this approach rather than spam you all with adverts every episode. I figured that was better for the kind of overall listener experience. I love you all equally, but I particularly want to do a shout out to my patrons who, at the time of recording, were Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, and Jamie Kingston. There is a lot to come in the new year. I'm not slowing down anytime soon. Interviews with Jacqueline Reiter on Chatham and Popham and Malia Agawa on motivation in Napoleon's army will be coming to you in January. There are also plans for an Irish month and a Wellington month in 2021. And I'm also looking at a little kind of wargaming style feature for you to give you a sense of what some battlefield manoeuvres would have looked like during the period and also to examine in a completely non-official way and fully acknowledging the limitations that are imposed on us, how battles unfolded and to counterfactually explore how some of those uh, actions could have turned out very differently with a few small tweaks. So keep an eye out for that. I'm also thinking about doing more content for you, perhaps three episodes a month, perhaps even weekly, but we'll have to see how that goes. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. Have a very happy, peaceful and restful Christmas. I hope that 2021 brings you all the joy and happiness that was so absent from 2020. And as always, thank you for listening. (laughs) 